When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. everybody and welcome to another episode of audio judo i'm kyle and i'm matthew audio judo are proud members of the pantheon podcast network your premier source for music podcasts if you're new to the audio judo family welcome we're glad that you're here yes uh, besides this podcast we also have a jazz centered podcast called audio judo does jazz if you wanted to get into jazz and never found the right avenue or just figured it was for music snobs and not for you it is for music snobs and just skip it no, just kidding. <laughs> uh, do yourself a favor. Check it out. Uh, you can find it at audiojudo.com forward slash AJDJ or anywhere else that podcasts our podcast. Uh, tonight, Kyle once again takes a trip off the grid after picking uh, one of the biggest albums of all time last episode out for him in Tina Turner's Private Dancer. Mm -hmm. He goes for a much lesser known album in a completely different genre. Because why not? For this episode, we were talking about Joy Division's Unknown Pleasures. Yes, the 1979 have, release. Have you ever had another man ask you if you're ready to talk about the Unknown Pleasures, Matthew? I have not. Well, there you go. Is that a... Is that I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I can't answer that. Okay. But uh, I take it it's you happening. Have it's now. happening now. Oh, right. Oh. It's happening right now. Like, right, you're asking I'm about it? I'm asking him? you. <laughs> I'm going to tell you all oh, about it. Uh, This 1979 release from uh, the goth rock, new wave, post-punk band... Joy Division. It's a very interesting choice, Kyle. Uh, I can't wait to hear your explanation for this choice. <laughs> I'm sure it has something to do with Ian Curtis, but I hope it, it's for other reasons as well. You, 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 should we talk about that right now first? Do you want to talk about that right now, right let's, out of the let's gate? Let's do it. Let's skip their history for a minute, and we'll talk about why I picked this album. Oh, okay. Two big reasons. Okay. First reason, I remember this is another one of those albums that I was very familiar with as a teenager and on into my 20s. But in a way that's kind of unusual, I could tell you what the songs sounded like on this album, 
but they were all muffled and terrible sounding. Oh, is this another s- under your sister's door? Yes. Ah. She was a big division. Uh, she was a big fan of uh, Joy Division and uh, uh, New Order. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like literally I would occasionally hear these songs on the radio or somewhere and I'd be like, where do I know this song from? And then if I plugged one ear and kind of pushed the other one against a pillow, I'd be like, oh, that's what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> second reason, the cover art specifically Uh, to this album has become we've talked about this a little bit before how there are people out there who recognize the cover art to like dark side of the moon sure that have never heard pink floyd and don't know what prog rock is there are people out there who recognize uh the cover to abbey road but weirdly enough have probably not listened to the beatles extensively it's a it's an album cover that transcends the music yeah it's uh this it, it this, lives it lives by itself. This has become one of those album covers. Absolutely. And, and obviously we'll cover that in a little bit. But it very much you if you look up Joy Division Unknown Pleasures, the album cover, you will immediately recognize it. You might not know what it is, mm-hmm. you might not know the history of where it came from, but you will immediately just be like, Oh yeah, I re- I recognize that. I've seen it on t-shirts, I've seen it on uh uh the internet. Uh, it was real popular on Tumblr Tumblr for several years as just like people's backgrounds of things because it's so abstract it doesn't really have any specific meaning unless you know what it is so it's an album that i'm not very familiar with i listened to it a few times in the 80s uh but hadn't heard most of it since then most likely limited to she's lost control which they Mm -hmm. sometimes play on first wave um it's a dark and interesting record um and uh, as you know i write my scripts and notes very linearly Mm -hmm. so I have very, really strong opinions about this record before we start talking about it, as Ooh. we get closer to it. And they kind of soften, I think, as we go further on, because I'm writing in order. Mm-hmm. So so I might be a little harsh well, at the outset. That's okay. But but just know, you know, we're getting there. Yeah. Well, uh, this is not a... I know sometimes we pick albums that are like, you know, like Tina Turner. I think anybody could sit down and listen to that and be like, oh, yeah, I found some some pleasure in that. This is a difficult album. I feel like this might be one of the albums that a lot of people will write to us and say, I hated that. Yeah. Why Why did you recommend this? Um, and to be honest, one of the big reasons why I am recommending it uh, is because I think that it's it's an important stepping stone between what came before it and what came after it. And I think that's a fair assessment. I, I think so much of the sound of the 80s, so much of the new wave movement, so much of the electronic movement started here. Right. And they were building, Joy Division was building off of bands like the Velvet Underground, David Bowie, uh, Iggy Pop, and the Stooges. Right. And they were so pivotal in the late 60s and 70s. And then there was this kind of weird gap for just a little while where everything was kind of rock only. Mm. And then bands like Joy Division and uh, The Cure and... uh, Lots of new wave bands sure. picked up. I suddenly drew a complete blank That's on okay. all new wave bands <laughs> except Joy Division and The Cure. But they sort of picked up and ran with it and and created that sound. And I think what what I'm I think I come back to it several times is there's no way to deny that they are an influential band. But being influential does not make you good. I will agree with that. And I think you know I'm going to be fairly harsh on a lot of my assessments about whether or not I like it or don't like it. I'm not denying. That it's important and relative and influential and people should listen to it. I just don't care for it. Oh, I'm so excited for this now. Because uh, I, I was really hoping. Because, again, I, I 
I don't. I can't really even say that I enjoy this album, but I listen to this album and I respect this album. Yeah, and I think again that it's an important album for people to give a listen to. But I was so worried that I was going to come in here and you were going to be like, "Why this was one of my favorite albums as a teenager," and I was just going to be like, "Oh God, no." Nope. So, I, that makes me happy because it means there might actually be some uh, interesting discussion that happens over this. I hope so. So uh, what do you know about Joy Division? Uh, I know they were founded in early summer of 1976 when future members of the band Bernard Sumner, Peter Hook, went to a Sex Pistols show separately mm-hmm. uh, at the Manchester Lesser Free Trade Hall. Uh, as a point of interest to anyone who, lis- uh, who listens, this is the second band we are covering from the city of Manchester, England. The first is Oasis, and I personally think this band is better and you can judge for yourself what i mean by that even though i've already told you that i probably don't like this record means i hate oasis even more (laughs) uh sumner said this about the concert and the sex pistols they destroyed the myth of being a pop star of a musician being some kind of god that you had to worship and i personally believe the sex pistols would end up doing that for a lot of future musicians while there would end up being a lot of other bands that followed in their footsteps the pistols were the best at it. They weren't great, but man, they were influential and lived every second of that punk lifestyle for a while. So the next day after that concert, Peter Hook borrowed 35 pounds from his mom and went and bought a bass guitar. Also joining the fledging band was drummer Terry Mason, who would only remain with the group for a short time. Uh, They would eventually place an ad in a local paper for a vocalist, and Ian Curtis responded and was hired without an audition. Yeah. Maybe you should have listened first. (laughs) (laughs) They kind of did know each other, though, casually. Yes. Uh, They had seen each other around. They were going to a lot of the same concerts and the same concert venues, and they were interested in the same type of music. And and Ian Curtis very much wanted to form a band as a songwriter and kind of singer. And they, I feel like they sort of pushed him to be, well, you're going to be the singer. Push him to the front. That's the spot that we need to fill. Exactly. So uh, um, original Buzzcocks manager Richard Boone and singer for the Buzzcocks Pete Shelley, both taking credit for originally naming the band Stiff Kittens. Yeah. Ugh. Uh, but soon after, they settled on the name Warsaw, a reference to the David Bowie song Borsaba, which, you know, you mentioned them yeah. being influenced by David Bowie. Uh, in 77, they recorded a five-song demo, but they were a little put off by the very aggressive personality of Terry Mason's drumming replacement Steve Brotherdale. Mm -hmm. They were so freaked out that when the band was driving home from the studio, they stopped the van, pretended they had a flat tire, encouraged Brotherdale to go out and check on it. He did, and they drove off and left him there. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I I would like to know what the resolution of that was, because it's not like he doesn't know who they are. Right. And (laughs) (laughs) I have heard that as both fact and myth before concerning oh, really? the band yeah now i obviously you know who knows whether it's actually true or not i like to believe that it's true because that's a very i like it I like punk rock story. kind of a thing to do yeah, just but. drive off <laughs> uh then they placed an advertisement in the record store for a new drummer and stephen morris answered the call and remained the drummer for the duration of the band Around this time, they changed their name to avoid confusion with the London punk band Warsaw Pact. Mm-hmm. That's with a K, P-A-K-T, because that's punk. And naturally, they uh, named themselves after the sexual slavery wing of a Nazi concentration oh, camp mentioned in the 1955 novel House of Dolls. Go ahead. Yeah. So have you ever heard more about House of Dolls? I have. Uh, so obviously, like you said, Joy Division, 
which was taken from the book House of Dolls, uh, was written by a man whose real name is, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Yehiel Dinner, or Dinner, uh, depending upon which pronunciation you sure. use. Uh, his pen name is Ka Tseznik. One three five six three three. He was actually in concentration. a concentration camp, and that was the number that the Nazis assigned to him. Um, he survived Auschwitz and uh, wrote about his experiences there. Joy divisions, or in German, I am going to try this one. Freudenbeitenlügen. Do it with the accent. Freudenbeitenlügen. That's better. Better. <laughs> uh, <laughs> They were, they were, like you said, they were brothels uh, where female Jewish prisoners were forced to have sex with Nazi soldiers and cooperative non-Jewish camp inmates. Mm-hmm. Sounds really terrible. I it, guess if you're going to go dark, though, you go all the way dark right? with your with your name. They um they documented at least ten um, of these joy divisions in ten different concentration camps. In the 1945 film Memory of the Camps, uh, which was a project by the British Ministry of Information and the American Office of War. They actually interviewed women who survived. I have seen that movie. Oh, really? It is. I watched it way back in high school on VHS. There had been a transfer of it for a, a paper that I was writing oh, about the concentration camps. Good grief! It is um, horrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's if you if you're studying that kind of thing, it's it's a incredibly valuable resource because they literally filmed it. In 1945, as they were closing these concentration camps, and they were like, oh, what was, what were these joy divisions? Oh, oh my God, we need to talk to these women. We need to talk to the survivors and get their stories. And they did. Right. And it is tragic and horrible and uh, an incredibly hard watch. It's hard to believe that humanity could inflict that much suffering on humanity. Yeah. It's pretty, it's... One thing I did find out in researching this, though, is... uh, I always considered House of Dolls to be his true accounts of what probably happened in, in the um, concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Um, in Israel, they actually considered a work of fiction. A novella, yes. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, they call it a, a stalag, oh. which is uh, a Holocaust exploitive pornographic work. Oh. It falls under the category called Nazi exploitation, Okay, which I had never heard of before, but apparently... Kind of like Hogan's Heroes? Kind of. I, I, I mean, I guess that would be a comedy version of this. But, right. But still, exploitation. I mean, Hogan's Heroes was very pornographic, but... I think... <laughs> I feel like that's an exploitative... Yeah. Like... And, and that's really what it was, is they were sort of... I guess mocking the Nazis is not the right term, but they were actively saying, we won, and therefore we are... We deserve this. Right. And it was a very, um, it's still controversial to this day, whether or not it's, how much of it is true, how much of it is false. Uh, okay. uh, very, I had I had no idea about any of that until I started digging deeper into this. And I, I thought it was very fascinating. It is fascinating. And obviously, again, I have no idea how much of it is true or false. I've never read uh, House of Dolls. I've read a synopsis of it, but I've never actually sat down and read the book. So. I haven't read it either. I've, I'm just familiar with it. Yeah. So uh, their first EP after this, an ideal for living was self-released, and it's raw, to say the least. Yeah. The p- packaging of the EP, coupled with the origin of the name of the band, would prove to be problematic for the band in the long run. Mm-hmm. Cover of the EP featured a drawing of a Hitler youth on the cover. The band admits to being fascinated with fascism, but they felt they were doing it more to keep the memory of their parents and grandparents alive. Uh, those who had sacrificed everything during the war. The problem was that a, as a punk band, accusing them of having neo-Nazi sympathies only provoked them further. Yeah. Because that's what punks do. You're not going to tell me what to do. And then they just ramped it up. Right. 
And, yeah. and I, I feel like that kind of was a, a a running theme in punk bands is there were a lot of people that were they looked like skinheads. They they acted, you know, they acted out in society in the same way that like neo-Nazis were, but they were very anti that type of they were anti-fascism, anti-fascism. They were anti-Nazi. Yeah. And they very much had they weren't like trying to support you know Nazism and, and fascism and 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 you know all the shit that that stood for, but I think that almost all of them because it, it's happened to multiple bands where you know uh, Joy Division just being one of the examples where there they did use Nazi imagery they used um, you know terms and things that w- were used by the Third Reich during World War II, and I think that they did it like you said more as a more as a remembrance and a look we. We are better than this now. We can we can build better than what these fascists, these horrible people were doing. But we have to remember what they did in order to build better. For sure. There's a there's actually a really fascinating book about uh, uh, centered from like 1978 to 1989 called Burning Down the House uh, about uh, punk rock and revolution and the fall of the Berlin Wall and all centered around the German punk scene. Ooh. And it's it's actually very fascinating and follow this group of 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 punk rockers for essentially ten or eleven years of how how in East Germany and how like persecuted they were and how they were just thrown into prison for months at a time with no explanation and just Jesus. I mean it's it's great just for wearing, you know, wearing spikes around your neck or safety pins or whatever. It's uh, it's actually a, a good book. I'll have you put a link in the show notes. Wink, wink, wink. <laughs> wink, wink. It's called Burning Down the House, Yeah. by the way. Um, you could also Google search for that when I forget to put the link in the show notes. <laughs> Randy's going to write it. Randy's going to write it down. Thank you, Randy. Uh, so as they were beginning to get more successful, lead singer Ian Curtis uh, had an epileptic seizure during the drive home from a gig, and he would eventually – or he would have, had to be hospitalized. And this would become – this would begin a very difficult road for him – and the band eventually culminating in his suicide. I think mm-hmm. we'll get there in a little bit. Uh, I was going to ask you, do you want to go over their whole history first, and then we'll go back and talk about this album, or do you want to skip ahead? Uh, do you want to go over the album and then skip back to this part? The His suicide? Yeah. I think we, I think we can talk about that as we, we kind of get into okay. the songs. So they set, uh, they set themselves to recording this record, Unknown Pleasures, and the album was released on June 15, 1979. Recorded over three successive weekends in April of eight, uh, 1979 at the local studios called Strawberry Studios. <laughs> Studio was used by Stone Roses, Moody Blues, and there's that guy Paul McCartney again. Who? I really feel like this guy might might be going places. Might be might have a music career ahead of him. We'll see. Uh, Fingers crossed. <laughs> produced by uh, Martin Hannett, uh, who's credited sort of with creating the unique sound of Joy Division. He believed that punk rock was sonically conservative. Because of its refusal to use studio technology to create a sonic space, which is a cool phrase to say. Right. And, and the guys in the band were kind of split yeah. about whether they liked it or whether they didn't like it. And especially at the time, there was a lot of, they were kind of at loggerheads about it. And since then, all the remaining band members, I believe, have all said he helped create that sound. And it really was something unique. And it's what built the band. Hmm. It's why we were successful. And, so. and I would say, I, I reference him quite often in this. Yeah. So uh, he was credited for the longest time as Martin Zero. That was his <laughs> name. And he was responsible for crafting the sound of doom and gloom in the early 80s. He was a producer for Joy Division, New Order, Happy Mondays, OMD. He had a very 
unorthodox recording method that made use of space gave the songs this real cavernous sound. One of the first guys to use delay and filters and echoes in this type of music, almost giving it a looping quality, which would be the next logical step. Yeah. Well, kind of begs the question, Kyle, uh, mm-hmm. and for you and for our listeners as well. So do you want to hear a band perform the songs as they did on the record? Oh. Or do you want it to sound different? Or do you want them to take chances in a live setting? So I can tell you from experience that it really depends on the source material on whether or not I want it to sound like the record. So if I'm going to a Rush show, a Rush show say, mm-hmm. I want that concert to sound as much like the record as humanly possible, just a lot louder. And the reason is because I have learned every nuance of that drum part, yeah. every grace note on the guitar, every inflection in the vocals, because I saturate myself in that music. I also know that what I've listened to on the record is very difficult to play, so it's fun to see your musical heroes pull that off yeah. night after night. Other bands, I want to hear it differently. For example, in my day job, I'm involved with seeing different musical artists on a regular basis, and one of the artists we see a lot is Bruno Mars. Mm -hmm. I was never a big fan of his music. Um, From what I had heard on the records, his songs sound kind of thin. They're fun, but they're thin with no energy. But in the live setting, it is a totally different story. His songs come alive, and they're full of energy, and it makes you sit up and take notice where his recorded material just kind of floats by. And I would love to hear what our fans out there have to say about that. Recorded or live or both and why. So send us a message on Twitter at Audio Judo and let us know what your preference is if you have one. I definitely feel like I I think you're right from my perspective anyways, is it it really depends on the music. Um, For the artists, I feel like they want to perform it the best that they can, whether that is exactly like it was on the album or a different version live. <laughs> Have I told you the story about when I saw Rat in concert? No. They were opening, I believe, for Sticks. Oh my. It was it was so there's this great concert venue in Salt Lake City, Utah called the USANA Amphitheater. Been there. Great concert venue. It's outdoors. Yeah, beautiful. They have seating down in the front and then a big grass bowl in the back. And yeah. the bowl seats are like 15 or 20 bucks a pop. Yeah. And they do rock concerts every weekend throughout the whole summer. It's great. There was a I can't remember the exact lineup, but I know that it was, I think, Rat and like a Sticks, and I can't remember the other two bands that were there, but they basically play four bands in a row. It was one of the versions of Rat. I honestly don't remember which one, because there's been like weird iterations and fighting over the name and everything. But you could tell they got up and they played a song and nobody recognized it. And then they were like, here's why you're all here. Crowd goes nuts. Go on to the next song. Yeah, round and round. Go on to the next song, crowd all sits down, everybody's going to get a beer, and you can just tell the singer is just so disappointed, and they play two more songs, and it's like, you, you guys want to hear Round and Round one more time? Yeah! yeah. Never, and it just, they just looked so miserable playing that song, and you know that they had to play it exactly like it was on the fucking album, or every single person in the audience was going to be like, boo! You guys suck. No solos. Boo. (laughs) And I felt like it was fun to see them. But at the same time, I was just like, oh, man, that's 
That sucks for that it's band. What we have to do that every night. Sucks. We have to go out and play round and right? round at least two times. And it just heartless, and you could just see their eyes go numb. Life sucked out of their body. Just like it was sad. It was very very sad, and I I honestly felt kind of bad watching them play it, especially the second time when they're just like out on the streets, that's around me, just eyes, and you're just like, oh my god, dude. But I think because of that. I would much rather see the band happily play a different version that I'm not familiar with. Exactly. Than play exactly what's on the album and be like. <laughs> it just depends on the just, attitude. You know, fart noise. It depends on the attitude of the band as well. Sorry, that was a little bit of a tangent. but That's okay. So tying up the Martin Hannett story. Yeah. He worked on and off for the better part of the 80s, worked on U2's first single, 11 O'Clock TikTok, and was set to be the producer for the album Boy when Ian Curtis committed suicide. And Hannett was too distraught to work, so he passed on the job. Oops. Uh, He would eventually spiral into drugs and alcohol, uh, specifically heroin, and die in 1992 of heart failure at the age of 42. He did, however, have this this to say about working with Joy Division. Yeah. Quote, Joy Division were a gift to a producer because they didn't have a clue. They didn't argue. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's why he got away with doing so many fun things on this album. Because like you were saying, he used early digital delays in this album. Yeah. He used Marshall time modulators, tape echo effects, bounce effects. Uh, there's the sound of a bottle smashing. There's some uh, the sound of someone eating crisps. Mm. There's backwards guitar sounds. There's the sound of a, the Strawberry Studios lift with a Leslie speaker whirring around inside of it. Oh, that's cool. There's the sounds of the basement toilet. And Ian's vocals for the song Insight, which we'll get to in a few minutes, uh, were recorded down a telephone line so he could re- achieve the, quote, requisite distance huh <laughs> i like it right I, the, I mean he was creative yeah uh weirdly for albums that we've talked about there were no singles released from this album uh-huh. uh there was a single that sort of came out at the same time called transmission it was from an earlier recording session right unknown pleasures did not chart at all it has since gone gold in the uk but it did yeah right. eventually uh, they didn't have a date on that so Going gold may have been 20 years later. Well, that's true. Uh, the initial pressing of this album was just 10,000 units. Oh, not a lot of them out there, then. Yeah, uh, but it is still considered successful. Uh, and Tony Wilson of uh, Factory Records uh, said this album turned the indie label into a true business and a, quote, revolutionary force that operated outside the major record label system. Wow. Indie. So that's cool. So, some very good things came out of this album. And reviews for the record have run the gamut over the years, from, quote, one of the greatest first albums ever to distinctive and disturbing. Even our old friend Robert Christigau said it was the, quote, passionate gravity of Curtis's voice that makes the clumsy and disquieting music so convincing. I think that's a compliment. Yeah. But I, and I want to talk about that in a second, but uh, I kind of want to wait until right before the track by track. So okay. uh, you want to do the cover now? Yeah, let's talk about it. So like I said, this is one of the reasons why I picked this album. If you don't know what it looks like, the best way I can describe it is a black album with some white squiggles in the middle of it. Squiggles. <laughs> um, but it's it's actually a, a design by Peter Seville, uh, who did many album covers for Factory Records in the late 70s and early 80s. He's gone on to design all kinds of awesome stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter Gabriel's So, as yeah, a matter of fact. There you go. Uh, the original cover did not have the band name or the album title on it, but several of the newer versions do. Uh, so if you see the one that says uh, Joy Division, Unknown Pleasures, that's the newer cover. The original didn't have those. 
depending on the account that you read, either Barney or Steven chose uh, the image to use on the cover. Um, and the image is actually from the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Astronomy, based on an image of radio waves from Pulsar CP1919. Seville changed the image to white on black from black on white, saying, I was afraid it might look a little cheap. I was convinced that it was just sexier in black. Definitely sexier in black. Uh, the image is what's called a stacked plot that represents the intensity of successive radio pulses from a pulsar. Uh, the image was originally created by radio astronomer Harold Kraft at the sadly now gone Arecibo Observatory for his 1970 doctoral dissertation as a way to visualize smaller pulses within larger ones, which might help explain what had been causing those smaller pulses. He was unaware for years that the image was used on the album until a friend pointed it out to him. Uh, he now owns a copy of the album, figuring that since he created the image, he should probably have a copy of the album. I would hope. Uh, Just one copy laying around. Um, the image on the album cover, like we said earlier, has sort of become its own thing. Yeah, it's, um, a, it's an iconic image. Yeah. Um, in the early 80s, uh, it was worn by a lot of Joy Division and New Order fans at concerts on T-shirts that they made themselves. Uh, it became even bigger when a Belgian fashion designer named Raph Simmons collaborated with Peter Seville on a 2003 clothing line that used the image. After that, the clothing brand Supreme, who you've probably heard of, uh, would pick it up a few years later and make it even more popular. In fact, it went so far that in 2012... Disney used the image for a Mickey Mouse t-shirt. The uh, greatest compliment. Right. Which and a, a perhaps lot of people, the greatest financial windfall. Right. A lot of people took that as a joke, uh, but it wasn't originally intended as one. It is horrible looking, in my opinion. <laughs> it's weird looking. Uh, Savelle explains the image's adaptability as a result of it being, quote, cool in all of the meanings, from cool to cold. Oh, man, that's cold. There is also a fantastic picture floating around of Peter Seville holding up a t-shirt with the image on it and the text above it and below it reads, what is this? I've seen it on Tumblr. <laughs> that was amazing. I've never seen it before. So I was like, oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's funny. But that's it. it. That's that's the cover. It's pretty cool. And like Aubrey Powell said about his Dark Side of the Moon image, when popular culture begins to use your image for things other than the album you designed it for, it's a pretty high honor. Yeah. So let's, let's tackle this first. Okay, so as far... As what I know about Joy Division before doing the research for this episode, it's actually very little. It kind of began and ended with Love Will Tear Us Apart. Okay. Uh, because that song always sounded muddy and the words unintelligible to me, I never wanted to really dig any deeper. I kind of determined that it wasn't for me, although I did love alternative music, so I just kind of put it to the side. I had probably heard this album once or twice before in the 80s. I've listened to it five or six times in prep for this recording. And I can't say that my opinion of it has improved at all. I just haven't been able to get my arms around it at all, not even a little bit. You have picked, in the past, albums that I've struggled with. Mm -hmm. Dirty Projectors, Mika come to mind. Uh, but at the end of the day, I was always able to find something that I gravitated to and found interest in and was really able to enjoy, whether that be the musicality of Dirty Projectors or the message of Mika. And I haven't been able to do that with this album. Mm. We have actually delayed the recording of this episode <laughs> twice. <Yeah. laughs> and even with the extra time, I still can't find it. <laughs> this album is supposed to be, according to the music magazine NME, quote, simply one of the greatest records ever made and powerful enough to floor you many years from now. So have I missed the point? Is there something in here 
that I can't grasp onto for whatever reason. So, I mean, I get the fact that this may be the first record to actually sound like this, but does it make it good? For instance, I know how influential Bob Dylan is. I know his place in the history of music. It doesn't make me like his music anymore or make it any more listenable. I know he broke ground. He changed things about music. I still hate it. My problem stems, I think, from the Ian Curtis problem. Now, Ian Curtis was a troubled young man from the very beginning. And also throw in the fact that he was ill with epilepsy during this time. And we haven't talked about his suicide yet. We will. But I have to wonder if there is a frozen moment idol factor in play here that makes, oh, yeah. makes me believe that this album may have been better, makes people believe that this album was better than it really was. Uh, there are singers who sound like him to this day that were contemporaries of his. Singers like Peter Murphy from Bauhaus, Richard Butler from the Psychedelic Furs, and to a lesser extent with the depth of his voice, Robert Smith from The Cure, who was a higher register. Yeah. Although Smith and Curtis share the same out-of-tune and bad-note moments, but Curtis is worshipped to some degree for how good his music was, and I just don't get it. Is it because he didn't survive? My question is, if he hadn't passed away at such a young age, and so tragically, would he have had the opportunity to make a bad record after this, like, say, a Wild Mood Swings by The Cure? Would we remember this record in such high regard if he made a stinker? Because musically, it's not great. Vocally, it's not great. Lyrically, it's not great. So it makes me wonder, what is the overall appeal of the record? And I feel... Like, maybe there's some myth-building going on. There are essentially only four, maybe five moments that I could pull out of this 10-song record that made me go, well, that was pretty cool. <laughs> and at no point was it the vocals. It was the production. It was what Martin Hammett did. So you've told me why you chose the record, and I think those are all fair points. But I think this is going to be a really interesting episode as we get into the songs. Yeah. Uh, and I certainly plan to be contrarian about it, but when I really dug deep into the history of the record and the sound of it, I couldn't find much that I loved about it. That's just kind of my diatribe yeah. at the beginning. I, I definitely think you're right on a lot of those points. I, I think that the fact that Ian Curtis passed away right as their second album was coming out, basically, mm -hmm. meant that their second album was sort of going to be, well, he passed away. So obviously this is going to be the last thing that they ever create. And then out of the two, I think that this is actually the better album. So of course, as time goes on, people are going to compare those two and say, well, this is this is their better album. This is their better album. Right. Uh, my personal opinion is that Closer uh, is just a bunch of mumbling <laughs> on his part. Yeah. The lyrics are, are not good at all. It's just a lot of... <laughs> on top of that, I do think that, like you said, first doesn't always necessarily mean good. It just means first. Right. And, you know, a lot of people hold up uh, The Velvet Underground and Nico. Right. As, you know, one of the very first sort of alternative rock albums of the all time. The Banana Record? Yeah, the yeah. Banana Record. Uh, you know, the Andy Warhol produced right. and designed record. And it's not a bad album, but again, it's not something that most people sit down and listen to over and over and over again, except the fact that a lot of people do sit down and listen to it over and over again. Right, and that's what I was because seeing. Because they think that they're hearing something there. They think, well, it was the first, so it has to be, it has to be good. It has to be the progenitor of this entire genre of music. 
And I think that's what's going on here. So many places did I read. People are like, I love this album. It's it's the best. I listen to it all the time. I listen to it every day. And I'm like, hey, what? Well, I'm missing something. Or is it just that because it's important, I've glommed onto it because it's important? I think you just nailed it right there. Yeah. I think that a lot of people hold this album in much higher regard because it is the first and because it is important to the future of music from this point forward. Right. That being said, should we talk about the tracks? Let's, let's take a quick break. Let's take a break. And then we will come back and uh, go over the track by track. Disorder mm. is the first track on here, Matthew. It's got a very clear punk-feeling drum beat to kick it off, and it sounds a little bit like this. funny bit comes in nope. because for all the shitting on this record and eating ian curtis's voice that i just did this is my favorite song on the record <laughs> and the song that i think has a lot of the really good moments on the whole thing little punky little up tempo unlike what is to come yeah and kind of fun to listen to and curtis is actually singing on this song yeah instead of droning and mumbling and it's not horrible uh, the guitar line's super simple and amateurish but it fits the song and the style perfectly I don't know what the hell Peter Hook is doing on the bass, though. It's pretty over the top and busy in parts. It's just yeah. like... There is a fun sort of a, a guitar and bass solo starting around 50 seconds in this song. Yeah. It goes on for about 45 or 50 seconds. That's that's nice. It's not bad. Lyrically, this is you know one of the better songs on the record. Uh, it seems probably pretty semi-autobiographical, as the title of the song is Disorder. Disorder. And he had been diagnosed with epilepsy, and I think that's what he's talking about. I think he wants to be treated like a normal person, but all he can see in other people is them looking at him differently. Uh, that probably isn't true, but that's what he's perceiving. Yeah, And that must have been horrible for him, knowing that he could be on, a, on stage performing and have a seizure at any point. Oh, yeah. He talked about, uh, I forget if it was written or in an interview, but he talked about how he felt... Whenever that did happen, because it happened to him several times where he would have seizures and things on stage. Right. And the crowd would go nuts because they thought it was part of his act. Yeah, they thought he was dancing. And he would afterwards just feel horrible and feel ashamed of himself. And and I'm sure that that had to be an absolute just blow to your ego. Right. And your, your personality and 
There's a, it feels <laughs> it sounds terrible. To there's me, a lot of baggage there. Like lyrically, there's a line. It's getting faster, moving faster now. It's getting out of hand on the tenth floor, down the back stairs into no man's land. He, he's is he potentially talking about his seizure, seizures picking up in frequency and getting faster, getting faster now, like more rapid fire, to the point that he'll no longer be able to control them either on stage or anywhere else. On on top of that, too, he was absolutely terrified of the idea of of dying in his sleep due to a seizure. I have, um, yeah, I have a. Oh, some, you, we can wait and get back to this. Yeah, I have something story. about that later. Yeah, we'll we'll come back to it then because okay. that's a that's a fascinating little story it about is. what they did to mitigate it. I'm pretty sure I have it. <laughs> yeah, I, if not, we can work it in somewhere else. I got it. Uh, is that a, you got more? No, that's it. A day. day of, oh, go ahead. No, you go. Day of the Lords. <laughs> It's uh, uh, the next song on here. Uh, it's got that long, slow fade in that sort of becomes a a, a staple of this album. Yeah. It happens a lot. Long, slow fade ins, long, slow fade outs. And I'm curious to know, I could not find any information on it. Is that because they would just start playing and sort of do pickups where like they would start playing the bass and then kind of start playing the guitar and just- So of... it's kind of based on a jam, yeah. more or less? Or Probably. because, I mean, they did record it in three weekends, so- yeah. That would be a way to get around that quickly so you don't have to do a whole bunch of different takes. The flip side of that is it's also kind of rare. Usually on an album, you might hear one song that has a real long, slow fade in. And I think six of them on this album have it, so more than half. That's a lot. So so about this time of the record, I'm pretty well roped in to the sound of it. It makes me takes me right back to the 80s with mm-hmm. that serious kind of adolescent despair and angst that a lot of us felt. Uh, this album is vital for that. Absolutely without a doubt, vital to that genre and its development. And part of me at this moment feels like I get where a lot of the Curtis adulation comes from because he does sing from a point of deep, deep anguish and is for sure channeling whatever it is he's battling at the moment. Yeah. Um, so I can I walk back what I said? Maybe I don't hate it at this moment, <laughs> uh, but I will come to hate it. You'll get there. Um, at the top of the record, perhaps the entire first side are all the shining moments for me. The beginning with that slow crawl, distorted guitar, and again, his vocals aren't horrible. Lyrically, I believe it's about someone withdrawing from drugs and detoxing. could see that. Um, at least that's what it sounds like at the beginning. It kind of w- takes a weird turn towards the end as he starts talking about a car and at the end of the road, because that part seems like a suicide scene to me. Yeah. The lines, this is the car at the edge of the road. There's nothing disturbed. All the windows are closed. I guess you were right when we talked in the heat. There's no room for the weak. No room for the weak. So did he drive down to the end of the road and kill himself in the car? That's why there's nothing disturbed and all the windows are up. After our conversation, I realized there's no room for the weak and maybe he perceived himself as weak. So... He took his own life there. I saw many comments about this song being about the atrocities of World War II, Mm -hmm. and I just cannot connect the dots. It is very difficult to connect those dots. There is sort of that overarching theme of, uh, uh, you know, punk and and neo-punk or whatever you want to call it at this point. We're against, you know, war, and they were anti-Nazi, and they were, you know, trying to remember the things that their parents went through. You know, during World War II and uh, the Korean War in Vietnam, at least in the U.S., and I think that a lot of that comes into play wherever there is even a, a hint of like this is an anti-war song. People absolutely grab onto it and pull, and right? Just like, oh, it's an anti-war song. Oh, it's definitely an anti-war song. It's a, there's a bloody room. There's a heroin addict and a car. 
with yeah. a potential suicide victim in it. That doesn't add up to the war to me. I'm a post-war, maybe, but not necessarily in war. And that is that is the one thing that I, I did note in here is it's possible that it could be referencing the horrors of a post-war Britain. The idea of, you know, all the people that came home after seeing all the atrocities of war and how do they deal with it? Well, they end up doing drugs and committing suicide because they don't have anybody to talk to about it. They don't have anybody to to help them with it. But I, I don't know. There's nothing explicit in there that says that to me either. No, I do like the drums on this song, though. Drummer is Stephen Morris. We're going to talk about him. Uh, Morris was born in 57 in Macclesfield, England. He always wanted to be a drummer. And when he told his dad about his dream, his dad said, drummers have never met a sane one yet. They all grow up taking morphine and drinking absinthe and rotting their brains. You don't want to end up like that, do you? As a drummer, I could say accurate. <laughs> Morris is still currently the drummer for New Order, the band formed in the wake of Joy Division's demise. Here's a little clip of this song. Oh, yeah. You can, you can judge for yourself whether you think it's an anti-war song or not. It just I, uh, screams anti-war. Right? I, uh, different clip than I was thinking of. That's actually the, uh, <laughs> the instrumental section right in the middle of the song, which uh, if you're about to notice a pattern here, a lot of their songs have a couple of verses, a little instrumental section, and then a closing verse or two. Candidate. This is where he starts to lose me a little bit, both musically and lyrically. Uh, I think Curtis benefited from those more up-tempo songs that tended to obscure his vocals a little bit or at least wash them with some other sounds. Mm -hmm. When his voice is just out there on its own, attempting to carry the song is, I think, when the band is actually at its weakest. He's trying to find a melody, but he's missing. Uh, and I'm sorry if I'm offending people out there, but you can't just tell me it's influential and groundbreaking and convince me that musically his voice is enjoyable to listen to. It is groundbreaking, and it is influential. But let's discuss the musical merits of it, if there are any. So... Lyrically, it's kind of blah mm -hmm. for me. Is he talking about politics or a relationship or both? Regardless of whether he's talking about politics or relationship, I think it works for either. Go ahead. No, that's what I was going to say is a lot of people speculate that it's it's what the song directly is about is a candidate you know, doing whatever they can to gain power uh, in a political situation. And a lot of people speculate that it's about somebody trying to gain the love of another who doesn't really want to love them back. Right. Which is, a, I guess, sort of a political situation. Well, I think the, the line that I took away from it that's actually, that some people could listen to right now, is, uh, I don't know what made me and what gave me the right to mess with your values and change wrong to right. Like, mm. hey, there we go. So I think some people in the current environment need to listen to that right now. It's definitely got a, a weird, haunting, sort of ethereal sound to it. it. Yeah. It sounds a little bit like this. Please keep your distance. The trail is to here. There's blood on your finger. Blood on my fear. I can't pay for nothing. I worked hard for 
The song also ends very abruptly. It just like just kind of done. Yeah. Very strange. Very strange song. Uh, Insight. Another long fade-in song, and I wrote down the note, pew-pew. <laughs> so, because that noise occurs over and over and over again throughout this. So while this side of the record is considered the best, in my opinion, mm-hmm. it is also the most profound and seems to deal most directly with Curtis's impending suicide. Yes. Uh, and those thoughts that led him down that road. Uh, aptly named Insight. It seems to be a direct reflection of what he's feeling. There's a lot of resignation in this song, and it feels like he's just given up. Uh, and while I really can't stand his delivery on the song or the fact that it sounds like he's holding his nose when he sings part of it, what he says is extremely powerful, and it sucks that people weren't more in tune with what he was saying, those people that were closest to him and yeah. didn't get him the help that he really, really needed. I do love the sound effects that producer Hannett uses to intensify that feeling of isolation, like the doors closing that makes you feel like you just entered a, a separate room, like a separate yeah. part of his brain where he's dealing with all these emotions. If we haven't talked about his suicide yet, we want to talk about that right now. Yeah, let's go ahead. So as the band's popularity grew, obviously, Ian began to have more and more issues with his ep- epilepsy and depression started to take over. Uh, it made him increasingly difficult for him to perform. So he sometimes would experience seizures on stage. And like I said earlier, many fans uh, thought it was part of his performance. They thought he was dancing weirdly, um, but it left him feeling really ashamed and severely depressed. Thankfully, the band did become uh, increasingly, increasingly worried about his health and were beginning to try to help him. But on April 7th, 1980, he attempted suicide by overdosing on his anti-seizure medication, uh, which was called phenobarbitone. Uh, He survived that, but his ill health led to the cancellation of several gigs throughout that April. Uh, And Joy Division's final live performance was held at the University of Birmingham's High Hall on May 2nd, 1980. Um, Joy Division was scheduled to commence their first U.S. and Canadian tour uh, in May of 1980, and Ian had expressed a lot of enthusiasm about the tour. Uh, But his health problems and his personal problems were beginning to come to a head at that point. Uh, including the fact that his wife Deborah had just filed for divorce uh, because she had found out he was having an affair with uh, a woman named Annick Honore, a Belgian journalist. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, the night before the band were due to leave on tour, Ian returned to his home to talk to Deborah, and he asked her not to leave him alone. Uh, I'm sorry, he asked her not to divorce him, uh, and then he asked that he be left alone in the house uh, throughout the night until the morning so that he could deal with his emotions. Um, he spent the night watching the Werner Herzog film uh, Strozek, um, and sadly, early in the morning of May 18th, 1980, he committed suicide by hanging himself in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Deborah discovered the body when she returned home later that day. So one thing to take note of is what everyone was saying about him right before. So he had been in therapy, cleaning himself up. He seemed to be genuinely excited about the tour. He was trying to reconcile with his wife and seemed to be in good spirits just a month or two after his previous attempt. So are you familiar with the rally, Kyle? So people who are suffering from cancer or other diseases who may be sick for long periods of time have a moment, whether that be a day or a week, where they seemingly all better. Yeah. Uh, They are lucid. And I think they're at the point where they know they're just about ready to die and have some time to say goodbye. And I think with someone who is ready to kill themselves like that, there might be an equal point where he knew exactly what he wanted to do. He wasn't afraid of it anymore and wanted to put on a happy face for his friends and family so they wouldn't worry about him as much, allowing him to do what he sadly felt he needed to do. Yeah. 
And I think that's kind of where he was at because that was one of the things they said towards the end was like, oh, he was excited about the tour. Yeah, we were going to leave for the he tour. Felt, he was so happy that we were finally going to be doing something this big. And, and I think he had resigned to the fact that that's what he was going to do. Yeah. And he accepted it. So bad scene there. Insight sounds a little bit like this. I'm not afraid anymore. I keep my eyes on the door, but I re- Like you said, Ian's vocals uh, uh, sound weird in this. Um, this is the song that I was saying earlier. They recorded it over a phone line so that it, oh, uh, that makes it had a that more sense. distance and, and uh, that distant sort of faded sound to it. Um, but it doesn't make them necessarily any less uh, poignant, I guess, at this point that he really was saying out loud, hey, I've resigned to the fact that my life is over. Yeah. Very sad. Indeed. New Dawn Fades. The closing track to side one. Mm-hmm. Song opens with the sample of the previous song, Insight, which has been treated and played backwards. And this is like a big heavy rock moment, almost Sabbath-like, has some heaviness to it. Uh, not so much the guitars, which are just a little, dis- one's distorted, one's clean. Uh, but the bass and the drums are much heavier, thicker than they have been on the re- record up until now. Mm-hmm. Um, and lyrically, once again, he's laying it pretty bare and no one is picking up on it. Obviously, it is much easier in hindsight to pick up on the warning signs, but it's all right there in the words. Lyrics like, it was me waiting for me, hoping for something more, me seeing me this time, hoping for something else. I mean, he's, it sucks to be that overt about something and no one is getting it. Uh, even fellow bandmate Bernard Sumner said this in the liner notes for a re-release of their second album. He said, strange as it may sound, it wasn't t- until after his death that we really listened to his lyrics and clearly heard the inner turmoil in them. I mean, you never really know what someone is battling, but it's also very rare that you have this many clues to what they're battling. Yeah. Um, I like this song to some degree, although again, not so much the vocals as the instrumentation and production. Uh, this song was covered by John Frusciante from uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, which is a nice cover. Oh, um, I don't think I've heard that one. Song was all has also appeared in the House of Wax movie, two thousand like four or five with uh, what, what what's her name Paris Hilton, ah Heat with Al Pacino. Remember uh, it from that. It's also in the twenty fourteen movie version of The Equalizer with Denzel Washington. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that equalizer. that equalizer. Uh, here's a little clip of what it sounds like.
another song with a really abrupt ending, uh, which I feel like probably very significant. That's weird to have slow, crawly openings and then yeah, cold and endings just, like da, 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 da. that. That's weird. She's lost control, man. Yes, she has. Uh, speaking with Q Magazine, uh, Joy Division guitarist Bernard Sum- Sumner uh, explained, quote, She Lost Control was about a girl who used to come into the rehab center where Ian worked to try to find work. She had epilepsy and lost more and more time uh, through it, and then one day she just didn't come in anymore. He assumed that she'd found a job, but found out later that she'd had a fit and died. Yeah, and by rehab center, let's be clear, it was a work rehabilitation center, not a drug rehabilitation center. So he was working there to find people work, and she was not able to work because of her condition. People were turning her away. So we write what we know, Mm -hmm. Kyle. Lyrics, like you said, that's that's what they uh, depict. And I, I think without Hannett's production on this record, we're not talking about it. I think the way he uses Echo on this song is so mysterious and weird. Yes. Kind of lets Curtis's vocals bounce around all over the pr- place, never degrading the Echo for any of the words, just letting the whole thing kind of stew around. And with lyrics like this, it becomes really effective. She screamed out, kicking on her side, and said, I've lost control again. And she seized up on the floor. I thought she'd die. She said, I've lost control. So he had not been diagnosed yet at this point. Mm -hmm. And when he was, he tried to contact her, only to find out that she had died from a seizure, which must have terrified him. So this is the story you alluded to earlier. Ian Curtis will later inform his wife that he had been told this woman had choked to death in her sleep as a result of an epileptic seizure. Consequently, one of Ian Curtis's greatest fears was his dying in his sleep as a result of a seizure. Due to this fear, he and his wife would establish a ritual whereby, upon evenings following a Joy Division gig in which Curtis did not experience an epileptic seizure, Ian would either sit in a chair and wait for a seizure to occur in his wife's presence, or lie in bed with his wife as both listen in silence to await a change in his breathing rhythm, which would signal an impending seizure in order that his wife could help him before he would go to sleep. Yeah. Crazy. That is nuts. And very sad. Uh, One other thing. I think the thing that stands out the most in this song is that noise that happens over and over and over again. Yeah. So uh, Martin Hannett was a stickler for trying new recording things. And they actually recorded the drums for this song completely individually of one another. Yeah. So Stephen Morris had to play just one drum and then just another drum. And they recorded them completely individually. So there was no cross between the microphones picking up those drum sounds. Um, That noise is actually a spray can that they had attached like a pad to the top of so he could hit it with a drumstick to keep beat. And, uh, it was played very near a microphone, so it picked it up in a really distorted way. And Bernard Sumner recalled, quote, unfortunately, I think it was fly spray or something. It nearly killed Steve, you know, pss, pss, all the way through the track. <laughs> uh, here, take a quick listen and, and see if it would kill you.
Uh, separately, this kind of gives you some sort of indication of the direction that New Order would head after Curtis passed away, musically, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we haven't mentioned it yet, the three surviving members of Joy Division would form New Order in the wake of his death. They focused a little more on the electronic sound, uh, but this high on the bass neck melody would reflect kind of their coming sound. That's all I have. Yeah. I was to say, uh, uh, talking about the, uh, the, the drums for this a little bit more, uh, Steven said in the book, Joy Division, The Oral History by John Savage, that his drumming here was inspired by Phil Spector. Um, quote, the same beat, but played with different sounds. It's just a classic Phil Spector beat. You listen to it and imagine it played on a big drum kit. It's the same thing, really. See, I'm not original at all. <laughs> but that was pretty funny. I'm not original. I'm not original at all. Uh, Shadow play. Mm-hmm. Not entirely sure what the song is about. I'm not either. Uh, uh, long, long faded on this song. Um, an earlier recording of the song uh, came out of the Warsaw demos. Uh, in order to do this version, they sped it up a little bit and uh, kind of changed the beat around just a bit. Those early recordings show that the first line of the song was originally to the center of the city where all roads meet looking for you. Uh, in this recording, it, uh, it is in the center of the city waiting for you. Oh, that changes Huge everything. Changes everything. Uh, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I say, here's a little sample. I did everything, everything I wanted to. I let them use you. This is a song where a ton of Martin Hannett's sound effects come into play. Um, there's breaking glass, there's footsteps, uh, there's somebody breathing like they just called you on the phone and asked what you were wearing under your clothes. For the record, I'm wearing a backwards jockstrap and a boidle, which is a girdle made for men. Oh. This is another song where you can still hear some of their punk influences, uh, but you can also hear the influences from bigger alt-rock musicians like the Velvet Underground, David Bowie, Brian, you know, a little bit of Pink Floyd in here even. The music is excellent. Yeah, and you you can kind of hear where they're going. Like you just said earlier, uh, three of the members would go on to form New Order, and this song has a little bit of that sound in it that would drag through New mm-hmm. Order. Uh, Killers did a cover of this song yes. for the soundtrack for the biopic about Ian Curtis. According to Rolling Stone, it's a song that, quote, should have remained in the vault. Uh, but apparently it's a concert staple for the Killers, and it reached number 68 on the Billboard Top 100. Wow. Didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. Uh, wilderness. This could have been a really good song. Mm-hmm. It has the right lyrics. It has the right riffs. I think you could make an excellent cover version of this song with a little more polishing. The lyrics are obviously an indictment on organized religion yeah. and how it could lead people astray. Uh, once again, the song follows the basic hook and melody from Peter Hook. <laughs> it just sounds a little messy. Like, by this point of the record, they weren't sure if the songs were strong enough, and they just kind of slapped them together at the end. Like, they were running out of ideas. Uh, almost like not as much care was spent on tracks 6 to 10 as they had on tracks 1 to 5. Uh, but I do like the lyrics. Um, I traveled far and wide through Prisons of the Cross, What did you see there? The power and glory of sin. What did you see there? The blood of Christ on their skins. I think that's some pretty powerful stuff right there. I don't hate the song. I just think it could have been a lot better than it ended up being. I would agree with that. I feel like it's 
And I kind of do wonder, because I agree with you that this album sort of gets a lot of the better stuff is on the A side at the beginning, and then it gets a little bit worse and worse and worse. And I know that as they progressed as as artists and, and uh, uh, song makers, I kind of wonder if the stuff on the back side of this album is older than the stuff on the front side of the album. That uh, is that, probably true. And that kind of holds, I think, with the idea of, you know, oh, they recorded it in three weekends. Well, obviously, if you record something in six days or seven days total, you've got to have a lot of that in your pocket already. Right. You already have to know how to play it. You already have to know how to you know, how it's going to come together. And I wonder if a lot of this older stuff wasn't as good just because they hadn't had the technical knowledge of how to pull a song together and they were getting there. And so obviously the stronger stuff ends up, ends up being at the beginning of the album. I, I say that's a fair, that's a fair theory, but uh, here, here's what the wilderness sounds like. I travel far and wide too many different times. What did you see there? I saw the saints with their toys, what did you see there? I saw a knowledge destroyed. I traveled far and wide too many different times. The only other thing I've got about this is uh, it's another part where uh, Martin Hannett played with the drums a little bit. There's some fun drum effects if you listen to this in a set of headphones and you have a good recording of it, mm-hmm. where they kind of spatially move around and you can really hear the drums kind of moving around your head, which is kind of a cool effect. I do like that. But uh, nothing really, really extreme here. Uh, Interzone. Interzone. Certainly the most straightforward Rocky song and almost doesn't sound like Joy Division at all. Yeah. Uh, Peter Hook. Uh, singing lead vocals on here with Ian on backing vocals, yeah. actually. And unfortunately, though, the mix is really weird. Yeah. And the background vocals are as equally loud or even louder than the main vocal lines. And it just sounds off. Well, it sounds like this. So, Interzone refers to an area in Tangier, Morocco, Mm -hmm. as written about in William S. Burroughs' book, Naked Lunch, which we have talked about before. Yes, we have. The city, at the time the novel was published, was a hotbed for spy activity, emigres, emigres, and other assorted characters, which earned it the name The International Zone, which would be shortened to Interzone for the novel, also becoming the working title of the book at one time. I like the fact that uh, in the Wikipedia article on uh, the the, uh, Interzone, uh, it mentioned that it was a hotbed for homosexual activity. (laughs) And I was like, ooh, a hotbed. Hotbed. Hotbed for homosexual activity, as well as Cold War espionage. And I was like, ooh. Ooh, Both? I wonder how often those overlapped. Probably or, a lot. Or underlapped, or were inserted inside. Or just it. some sort of lapped. <laughs> some, there was some lap sitting going on for sure. I like this song quite a bit. 
I bet you said remixing and reworking. I love the little fade out on the end of this one. It's yeah. sort of like a wow. Uh, <laughs> wow. Which is sad to me because the next song is the most depressing and my least favorite song on this whole album. Who ends uh, their record with the bleakest song? Oh, in, my God. I mean, The Cure kind of did it, but it had a little hope at the end. Uh, the next song is called I Remember Nothing. I cannot stand this song at all. No, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I listened to this twice out of maybe six or eight listens of this album. It drones on for yes. almost six minutes. Uh, have a little listen. Violent, more violent, his hand cracks the chair. This is the band at its most desolate and meandering, and frankly, they just sound so lost and hopeless, and perhaps that was the intention, Yeah, considering the style of music that it is. You leave the listener with remembrances of pain and despair. I just hope I didn't depress anybody who listened to this album for the first time, and afterwards they're just like, oh, God. It's rough. I apologize if I did. And the song goes nowhere. No. And I'm really sorry that it has to end like that. But that is unknown pleasures. Did you? Do you now know? Is it now considered known pleasures? Now that we've talked. Now about that we've it? talked about it, it yeah. is known. I would say that after doing this exercise, I don't think that I hate it as much as I thought I did. It is certainly not a record that enters my regular rotation, and it is a difficult listen. But I think yes. there are some redeemable things about it. And like I have said before, my not liking it certainly doesn't take away from my belief that it is an important record and one that is vital to the influence of a lot of alternative music that comes after it. But you need to make up your own mind and then tell me what you think of it. You can let us know via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash audio judo or on Twitter at audio judo or even on Insta at audio underscore judo. If you feel like a book is in order, you can send us an email to info at audiojudo.com. And if you are like, you guys suck, their next album, Closer, is way better, and I want to talk about it. How would they do that? Kyle? Guess what? So there is a way they can do that, Matthew. However, if you just want to hear more of us rambling, uh, talking about stuff that we like, uh, you can sign up for our lower tier Patreon. It's called the Front Row Seats. It's $5 a month, uh, but it includes two-day early access to all of our new episodes, a uh, shout-out on a future episode as a loyal producer, mini bonus episodes called Judo Chops, they run from like five to 15 or 20 minutes and they cover like one little uh, side subject. We have a lot of fun making those and occasional bonus content like unedited interviews, uh, behind the scenes videos and tiny tidbits that got cut out of episodes, mostly due to us making horrible noises with our mouths and or buttholes. You can also sign up if you really want us to cover an album. Uh, you can sign up for the backstage past here. It is $20 a month. However, 
It includes a very special personalized gift from us and the chance to co-host an episode of Audio Judo on the album of your choice. Uh, That benefit activates after one year of patronage at that tier level, and it can only be activated once. You also get all the benefits from the $5 a month front row seats tier. Uh, We have our very first one of those coming up uh, shortly here. We're going to be recording an episode with uh, one of our $20 a month backstage uh, pass patrons. Mm -hmm. I'm excited for it. I don't know how you feel about it. I'm very excited for it. It should be very interesting. As we do mention for our $5 patrons and our $20 patrons, we have a new patron. We do. A newest producer. Uh, His name, Rory M. Welcome, Rory. Welcome, Rory. We're happy that you're on board, and uh, we'll start uh, shoving some content your way. Yeah. Please also don't forget to check out our jazz series again, Audio Judo Does Jazz. Uh, you can find that at audiojudo.com forward slash AJDJ. That one is totally free, by the way. You can also find it just about anywhere podcasts exist. Exactly. We have episodes coming up about Bob Seeger, Dire Straits, and Rush. Make sure you join the Patreon. So, yeah, I don't know. Some, I don't know, some Canadian band I remember. Oh, okay. uh, make sure you join the Patreon so you can get all those judo chops. And we will talk to you all again in two weeks. Bye bye, everybody. Take care, everybody. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.